It's a great joy and honor to be here this morning with you, brothers and sisters. Um, we'll turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and I'll read to you this long passage before we dive into this text. Thank you very much for having me here. Dr. Hamilton, thank you very much. It's a grateful. Revelation chapter 4 and 5. I'm going to read it from my Bible, ESV, and then we will see what God has to say to us through his word. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And round the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast the grounds before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing and as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father, you are God who is worthy of a worship. And your Son is worthy of worship. And we've gathered to, to do exactly that. Help us to know more about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sovereign Lord is worthy of your worship. God is sovereign who is seated on the throne. Therefore, worship him. You know, as we look around this world today, we find that this whole world seems to be in a chaos. Everything is going crazy. Hey, why does the Lord even know what is going on in this world? Are the things still going on as he had planned it to be? Sometimes it does not seem that the Lord is in control. At least that's what some people think. But we as Christians who trust in the sovereignty of God, sometimes it can be difficult to grasp onto this truth as we see things unraveling in our lives and sometimes in the lives of those who are around us. And especially when things seem to be spiraling downwards in the world today. Is the Lord really in control? That's a question. See, the book of Revelation was written to people who needed answers to such questions. See, God gave visions to Apostle John, in which Jesus himself tells John how things will work out in the history of mankind. And as we read through the whole of Revelation, we find that the one main theme that keeps emerging is this. God is sovereign. He's in control. Everything that is around us is the unfolding of God's plans for human history. Nothing is outside and beyond his control. And in and through all the mess that we see and experience, and those who trust in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus will persevere till the end. They will persevere till the end because Jesus is their king and he reigns on high. That's what Revelation tells us over and over again. So very quickly, just to give you a quick background to Revelation, the time period in which this is being written, and the first recipients of this book are Christians, uh, they were margin marginalized in the society, often facing extreme persecution and opposition because of their faith. And it seemed that the whole church was being undone by various forces from outside and within. And this is barely approximately after six decades of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And by the way, John himself, who is the recipient of all these visions in this book and the author, he himself is exiled on an island. 
So things were really hard. Things were really difficult for Christians at the time. And when I say really hard, I don't mean how you and I sometimes say, oh, things are really hard. I couldn't get my Starbucks today. The drive through there was a long line. Not that kind of hardship. Real, physical, financial, emotional, sociological, spiritual hardship. Uh, in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, if you read, we have letters to seven churches in the regions of Asia Minor. They all were real existing churches at that time, representing all churches of all time. Uh, out of seven churches, only two churches, or Smyrna and Philadelphia, received positive words of, um, uh, for the spiritual situation and status. And the rest, five, are reprimanded for their compromised faith. And as you finish reading chapter 2 and 3, you realize very soon that the church is actually very weak. It is struggling spiritually. It is struggling to maintain theological fidelity. It is struggling to have any social impact whatsoever. And on top of that, churches are facing poverty, persecution from the state, from organized religion of the time, that is Judaism. And we start to wonder if these churches have any hope at all. Will they make it? Do they have any help? Who is on their side? But as we read the letters to the churches, there is a common encouragement we find in all these letters. Christ encourages and encourages the members of these churches to persevere till the end. That is, if they conquer, Christ says, he will honor them. He will grant them victory and give them access into his eternal kingdom. Uh, but the thing is, these promises don't seem very appealing given the current situation of the church at that time. It is in such context that we come to chapter 4 and 5. Basically, chapter 4 and 5 is given to Christians who are beat down by circumstances around them who might be tempted to give up or give in, compromise, be crushed by opposition and persecution, trials and temptation. It is to them chapter 4 and 5 is given to show them that the one who promises them can actually deliver. He is worthy to be followed. You can trust him. His words are not just empty words. He indeed is in control and he is in charge. So please take heart. Lift up your eyes to heavens. Don't be bogged down by circumstances, situations around you. The problems, persecution, poverty, opposition, trials and temptations are temporary. And even in the midst of all this, your Lord is still in control. He is seated on high. And then Revelation 4 and 5 will set us up for the rest of the book in which we will see history unfold. We will see how the one who sits on the throne actually controls the destiny of this world and its inhabitants. And chapter 4 and 5 will set the stage for God's ongoing judgment on this earth against humanity's rebellion and willful disobedience on this earth leading up to the final judgment and then the climax, the restoration of creation and the coming of the new earth and new heaven. See, regardless of what might be happening around us, when we look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we are presented with a very different picture. The Lord is seated on the throne. He is absolutely in control. You will hear me see this, say this again and again because the theme is repetitive and I'm Indian. I like to say the things over and over again. I repeat myself a lot. 
And well, if the Lord is absolutely sovereign and he is seated on the throne, then what should the response of the believers be? Well, they must worship him, they must honor him, they must glorify him. And this is the one big thing that I want us to remember today, which is, as I said before many times already, the sovereign Lord is worthy of our worship. The sovereign Lord is worthy of our worship. And as we keep this in mind, that the sovereign Lord is worthy of our worship, we will see in chapter 4, we will see in chapter 4 that God the Father, God the Father is firmly in control of this universe. God the Father is firmly in control of this universe. We see it in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5 we see that God the Son is the Lord over the history of this universe. God the Son is Lord over the history of this universe. So first, let's very quickly look at chapter 4 where we see God the Father is firmly in control of this universe. And as we look through these two chapters, I want us to be thinking about and looking at the majesty of God as the Holy Spirit wants us to see this morning. I want us to be in awe of God. I want us to be in wonder of God. I want us to lift up our eyes to heavens and fix a gaze on Him. And as we do that, we will find that we are less burdened, less occupied, consumed, terrified, and worried about things around us. Actually, one of a very good way, one of the very good ways to deal with issues around us and in this world is to look at the bigness of God and to remind ourselves who He is and marvel at His greatness. And the more we are filled with awe and wonder of His amazing glory, we will see that actually all the things that seem to intimidate us, seem to threaten us, are nothing but, quite frankly, pity little things, pity little things. They will be gone tomorrow. And by God's grace, we will persevere because the Lord who sits on the throne will empower us and enable us to face all things. So very quickly, as we look in verses 1 to 6 in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we will see the majesty of God displayed very clearly. And then we'll see in verses 6 to verse 11, the majestic God must be worshipped. The majestic God must be worshipped. So in verse 1, we see that John tells us right after seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, he sees a door open in heaven. He sees a door standing, standing open in heaven. And then right after that, he's invited to come up to heaven to see what is about to take place in human history. This is very different from what a lot of people claim to be seeing about heaven. Don't think about that thing. Think this is different. Focus here what's happening here. Before we even talk about the grandeur and majesty of God, I want us to quickly point out to, to see that verse 1 actually displays God's mercy and kindness. This verse is intended to be an encouragement for readers back in that time. Uh, this is particularly encouraging for the believers in Smyrna in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and the believers of Philadelphia back in chapter 3, in verses 7 to 13. It seems that both these churches have been put out of synagogues by zealous right-wing people. Christians were no more considered part of the Jewish cult, and the doors to synagogues were no more open for these Christians. Neither were the doors to influential places in society anymore. But Jesus says specifically in chapter 3 and verse 8 to the church at Philadelphia. He says, I have set before you an open door. 
which no one is able to shut. I know you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. So here it's almost as if Jesus is saying that through Apostle John, listen, listen, Christians, the doors of heaven are open for you believers. You have access to my presence. Take heart, don't give up, don't be discouraged. Persevere and you will have your reward. While the world does not seem to know who is in control, I want to give you a sneak peek into my plans for the world. Uh, it does not matter that you don't have special privileges in your society. But in my kingdom, you have special access to my place of honor authority, which you probably don't have now on this earth. So right after that, uh, from verses six, uh, 2 to 6, uh, we, we have a description of the throne. If you notice um, in the reading that I've done earlier, the word throne occurs again and again in this passage. And if a word comes again and again, if this word throne keeps coming up again and again, then this throne must have some significance. We all know that throne is a seat, a place um, uh, where a king sits on and pronounces judgment and carries out decrees for his kingdom. Throne signifies a seat of power, control, authority, rule, and reign. As long as the king is seated on his throne, that means he's the king. He's in control of his empire firmly. I think this is the very same idea that the author wants us to understand. So in verse 2, John is brought into heaven, and the first thing he sees, bang, what does he see? He sees a throne in heaven and somebody seated on that throne. And who is the occupant of the throne? It is none other but God himself. I hope you pay attention to this fact. And not only that there is a throne in heaven, but the Lord God himself sits on that throne. You see, this throne in heaven is not up for grabs. Uh, there is no possibility of coup d'etat or house arrest of this person in charge. He cannot be impeached. He cannot be voted out of the office. No, he is firmly in control. He is in grip of his power. God is not perturbed, troubled by the incidents that are happening on earth right now. He's not threatened. Not threatened by what's happening now, what has happened, or what will happen. I mean, this is great news for John. Uh, he's once again reminded of this fact that regardless of what seems to be happening around us, uh, regardless of what's happening with Christians and churches, the fact of the matter is God is in control and John take heart. Not only John, but his readers back then. Not only his readers, but you and I after 2,000 years also. We need to remember, remind ourselves these, this truth. And the more we learn of this truth, believe in this truth, the more we will learn to relax and just trust the Lord in big things and in small things. It affects how we view whole of our life. Let's keep moving in verse 3. In verse 3, now John tries to describe the one who is seated on the throne. In verse 3, say, as soon as he comes to describe um, God who is seated on the throne, he has to resort to, uh, tr he tries, attempts to describe his appearance, what he seems to look like. Of course, God is spirit. 
and he has no form or shape. That is form or shape. That is one of the most basic tenets of Christianity. Uh, God dwells in splendor and majesty. So when he's attempting to describe what God looks like, and often Bible authors will do this thing, they will end up describing his glory. They, they, will, they will end up describing uh, what his glory looks like. And here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. As John does that, as John does that, look at, look at these verses. As John, as John does that, he starts fumbling for words. He cannot even describe the glory of God because it is so glorious. So all he can think of is all these precious, beautiful stones uh, that adorn the clothes of priests in the Old Testament. But God had much more than that. He was full of it. There was bright effervescence, shining light, brilliant colors, a rainbow reminiscent of God's grace from Noah's time. It all came together to create an amazing beauty that produced awe in the heart of the person watching that amazing display of glory. Then we see in verse 4, as if the glory of this one throne wasn't enough to add to that glory, it was surrounded by 24 other thrones that had elders seated on them. See in verses 4 onwards. And, with their, and they had their own crowns on their own heads. These 24 elders possibly seemed to be representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles representing the church, as we see in chapter 21, verses 12 and 14. Or possibly, these elders represent Christians who have persevered till the end. They have been victorious, and they have been given the crown of life, as Jesus has promised to his people in chapter 2 and 3. And also, as New Testament tells us, that believers will reign with Christ in heaven. But more important, more important than trying to identify who these individuals, these 24 elders are, and why exactly 24, I think the main thing that is being commun communicated, conveyed here, is that God is on his throne, he's seated on his throne, and in his courtroom, and his court is in session. His work of ruling along with his vice regents is active and present at all the time. Look at me at verse 5. Verse 5 further describes us how impressive God's presence and throne is. Just as in the Old Testament, God's terrifying presence was marked with thunder and lightning and rumbling to show how awesome God is in the same manner we see that His presence is awesome. It produces fear, respect, and awe at the same time. And in the midst of all that, we see God's spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit in verse 5 and last section, seven torches of fire signifying completeness, perfection, holiness, the work of cleansing, sifting right from wrong that will eventually be brought through by the work of judgment. In, the sense while, in a sense, while we see the description of heaven and the throne and God the Father, that cannot be described without keeping in mind the presence of the Holy Spirit. He is very much there with the Father in heaven. Uh, not only then, let's quickly look at me in verse 6. In verse 6, there's a sea of glass like crystal reminding people of God's ever-expanding transcendence beyond a complete comprehension. While John is being given an access into the Holy of Holies, there's still a distinction and separation, separation between the creation and the creator which is never to be forgotten. 
See, having seen the majesty of God in verses 1 to 6, part A, now please turn with me to verses 6B to verse 11, and let's look at the majestic God must be worshipped. This majestic God must be worshipped. So John has just described us the majesty of God. He has fumbled for words and description and tries to think of the most precious, beautiful, glorious things from creation and tries to describe the creator. And then his eyes turn to a strange-looking creature in verses 6 onwards. Suddenly we have these four beings who are living creatures full of eyes. They can see everything. Nothing is hidden from them, full of understanding and knowledge. They are in the presence of God. So they themselves must be full of holiness and therefore they are able to be in the presence of God. In verse 7 we see that they are like a lion, an ox, a man and an eagle representing various aspects of creation. And in verse 8 we see they have six wings signifying power, supernatural ability to accomplish tasks entrusted to them by the master. Again, what we have to remember is that the key is not trying to decipher the details about these beings. But the important thing uh, that we need to pay attention to is uh, that what they are saying, what they're trying to say to us. So notice that these extraordinary supernatural beings with extraordinary ability of knowledge, strength, agility, vision, etc., they do not stop praising God. They keep praising Him. They themselves, when you read this thing, what strikes, what stands out, that they themselves are awesome beings. They themselves are awesome beings, but they recognize that their awesomeness is nothing compared to the one who is seated on the throne. And their highest honor and calling in the life would be nothing but to give praise and honor to this one. They cannot help but ascribe greatness to the Lord. They do not get tired of singing praises to his name. They don't just wait for Sundays to come. They do it day and night, never ceasing to glorify his name. Now here's an exciting thing that we see in verse 9. Verse 9. The worship given to God by the supernatural being is contagious and electrifying. Do you see that? So as they worship God, the 24 elders who are, by, by the way, themselves sitting on separate th thrones, have their own crowns, join along with these beings to praise God also. Do you see? Worship is contagious. They cannot help but join in. So they to take off their crowns and put it before God, and they to say, of course, Lord God, of course, of course, you are God, you are sovereign, you are in control, you must be worshipped because you are worthy to be praised and honored. Why would you and I not worship? Everything we see that exists, exists because of God. This is what these guys are saying, including all these supernatural beings and all the creation and all the else, everything. And although the Creator doesn't tell us this, but you can always, almost imagine, you can almost imagine Apostle John at that very moment prostrating down and falling down, and he also joins these beings and elders in the worship of the Lord. And as he does that, he's reminded and he's encouraged. He's reminded and he's encouraged, listen, do not worry about this Roman Empire. 
this emperor who has sent, sent you on exile on this, this, this island, he's not the one who's in control. You must not fear for your life. He does not reign, I reign. Uh, these Romans and these leaders of synagogues, they, they, they are on borrowed time. They're on borrowed time. Uh, their rule has been granted to them. Sublet. They have it for a small, little period of time. It is God who reigns. And when John sees this, he's filled with extreme confidence to continue to trust in the Lord and to continue to preach the good news that has been entrusted to him. Not only John, you can imagine the first recipients of this letter, right? This letter goes out to these people, and as they listen to this being read to them, as they hear chapter 4, you can almost imagine what they do as, as chapter 4 is being read to them. They say, hang on, hang on, wait, wait, wait. Let's start singing praise to his name spontaneously. Break out in unison and sing praises to his name. They must be filled with encouragement and hope and with challenge to not be weighed down by the worries of this world, but to look to the world that is to come. In the meantime, persevere. In the meantime, keep going. In the meantime, remember, God is in control. They need to focus on the majesty of God, and they need to remember that the majestic God must be worshipped. Here's the, here's the thing. Apostle John's amazing experience does not finish there. He's in for more spiritual treat. An elaborate feast is awaiting him. So chapter 4 finishes, and then in chapter 5, he will realize that not only God the Father is firmly in control, but he'll see that God the Son is the Lord over the history of this universe. So let's press on. Let's keep going. In chapter 5, we see in verses 1 to 7, in verses 1 to 7, in chapter 5, we'll see the majesty of his Son. We'll see the majesty of the Son. And then in verses 8 to 14, we will see again. Just like the Father, the majestic Son must be worshipped. The majestic Son must be worshipped in verses 8 to 7, in verses 8 to 14. So first, in verses 1 to 7, the majesty of the Son. Right after seeing the four supernatural beings and the elders worshipping the Lord, we see in verse 4, the scene shifts again to the throne. But this time, the focus is something called a scroll. And just as in the last chapter, the word throne was repeated again and again and again, several times, signifying some importance. In the same way, in these verses, we see the word scroll being repeated several times. So it must have some weight to it. So what we have here is that God the Father, in verse 1, has a scroll in his right hand. And, and it's written inside and outside. But at the same time, it is sealed just as king and kings in ancient times would have the written edicts on a scroll and then roll them up and put this seal on it and only authorized persons would be allowed to open it and follow the instructions that were given in it. In the same manner, we see that God has a scroll. It has been sealed. And then in verse 2, an angel comes out, a strong angel. It's interesting how, how John describes him. A strong angel comes out, calling out in the heavenly courts, and he says, who can open the scroll? Who can break the seals? Is there anyone out there? Who can do it? And of course, the expected answer is, uh, no one. No one. 
After all, that scroll belongs to, 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 to God and no one else. It is in his right hand. It is firmly secured in his hand. And which created being has uh, authority, power, and ability in this whole creation to approach this God who dwells in light and then dare to take something from him that belongs to him something that he has authored, something that he controls. Only God has the ability to unwrap and unravel the things of God. No one else does. Basically, the scroll signifies God's edicts, instructions for human history. It's another way of saying that God has foreordained how human, way, uh, how human history must unfold. He has detailed instructions for how things will pan out in the entire human history. His instructions are complete. And that's why this, this scroll has writing on the inside and the outside. There's no section of human history that has been ignored or forgotten, forgotten by God. He knows it all. He's thought about it all. He's planned it all. He's planned it very well. From the beginning to the end, from the big picture to the minor details concerning humanity. And God's plans are eventually for the welfare and the betterment of those who trust in him. But his plans have to be carried out in history. And in order to carry them out, someone has to open the scroll and get things rolling and get things going. And this is what this angel is asking. In verses 2, verse 2, of course, verse 3 and 4 tell us there's no one. There's no one. And for a moment, it seems that things in heaven are quite tense. Uh, it seems that God's plans for humanity will not unfold as there's no one who can carry out the plans uh, that the Lord has for this universe. Uh, no one has the ability to do it. Who will, who will do his work? Some mere mortal or some supernatural being who kind of is God, is like God? No, no one can match up to who God is. That's why this angel breaks out in tears and weeps loudly. He starts crying. God's people are doomed. They have no hope. They have, uh, what will they live for now? Their eternity is in jeopardy. But here's a twist, a twist that you and I are already expecting because we have access to the all, to all inside information about heaven and the Father and the Son. So when despondency was about to take over in verse 5, an angel breaks good news, to, uh, an, an elder, one of the elders, breaks good news to the angel and he says, well, weep no more, weep no more. And we see in these verses a description, a description of the majesty of the sun that is unparalleled and unmasked. See, this message is not just for the angel. This is for John. This is for the persecuted Christians back then. It is for Christians all over the world, even today, till Jesus comes back. Let your hearts not be disheartened. Fear not, there is someone who can open the scroll. And then the elder, elder tells him, tells this angel on what grounds, on what basis this person has the ability to access God's scrolls. 
Look out for the lion of the tribe of Judah. Look out for that lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered the evil one. He can open the scroll. He can open up the seven seals. This person is ferocious. He's powerful like a lion. He descends from the tribe of Judah. This is where David came from. This means that he is a descendant of David. So he is the Davidic Messiah. He's the king as promised by God in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He has proved himself to be capable of opening the scroll by removing the seals because he has been victorious over his enemies. He has decisively vanquished over them all and decimated them, just as a lion would do. Think about the majesty of the sun. Think about the majesty of the sun as described in these verses. He is powerfully, he is powerful and absolutely awesome. He is a fearsome, he is fearsome and deserves to be honored because everything that he has accomplished. But here's, a, here's another twist. As the son is being described, uh, as mentioned as the Lion of Judah, a descendant of valiant king David, we turn to verse 6. We turn to verse 6. And we see that there is a lamb. Do you see? In verse 5, we were told that the lion would come. But in verse 6, there is a lamb. Two opposing, very, uh, very different attributes, contrasting images. But these contrasting images have no contradiction in them. This is the majesty of the sun. The sun in his majesty has been victorious as the ultimate Lion King, but accomplishes that as a lamb. Please look with me in verse 6, section B, part B. Verse 6, part B. And uh, he is a lamb who has as though been slain. This is a very clear picture of the crucified Christ. Christ died on the cross and in his death he was victorious over his enemy. This is the lamb that was slain for his people. This is also the same lion that reigns in, the, in, 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 in verse 4, verse 6, last section. In verse 6, last section. We see that this, lion has seven, this lamb has seven horns. You see that this lamb has seven horns. The seven horns which symbolize complete and perfect rule, reign, and authority. How majestic is this lamb, this lion, this king, this Davidic Messiah. He has accomplished what no one else could have. And in the manner that no one else could have. In dying, he has dealt with death. In his death, he has saved his people. In his being slayed, he has slayed the devil. Oh, how majestic. Oh, how glorious is this lamb. And you say you also notice that this lamb has seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God, which is just another way of saying that all the work that he has done, he has done it by being empowered in and by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has enabled him to undertake the work that he has taken and his presence was with him and is all the time. We saw it earlier that the Holy Spirit is present with the Father near the throne ready to carry out the judgment of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is with the Son to carry out his message of goodness to the ends of this world, which when believed upon, brings life through the death of his son, but when rejected, brings death and destruction through the impending judgment. 
And then look with me in verse 7. Look with me in verse 7. This is an incredible verse. This is an incredible verse. Just a few moments ago, there was hopelessness, so to speak, right? Figuratively, of course. There's hopelessness in heaven, uh, heavenly realm, so to speak. Notice how the Lamb just walks up to the throne without a hint of hesitation in Him. And He takes the scroll right out of the hands of the one who is sitting on the throne. Who could dare to do that? Who could dare to do that? The amazing thing is that the one who is seated on the throne, the Father, he has no hesitation to give it to him. Do you see that? It's amazing. The, the son just walks up and the Father just gives it. This is the perfect match made in heaven, perfect partnership. I hope you see this. I hope you're excited about this amazing, beautiful, perfect partnership between the Father and the Son. And as you see this, I hope you also see the majesty of the Son. How majestic is the Son? Only He is the Lord of history of this universe. He will unfold events as planned out by the Lord God of this universe, of this heaven and earth. Without His intervention, nothing will play out in the history of humanity. The church will have a safe future. Christians will be ultimately secure because their Lord God is the Lord of the universe, of the history of this universe. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Uh, he knows where this is all heading towards. He knows how it will pan out. He knows it. And if this is true, then you must worship him. This is what we see in verses 8, second section 8b to verse 14. Worship the Son, the majestic Son, the majestic Son. So I think you already know about this, that the New Testament writers were from Jewish background, most of them, right? Uh, they were militantly monotheists, militantly monotheists. They were very clear in the mind that there's only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 was drilled in their minds and in their heads. But it's amazing. It's amazing that even though the whole Testament is vehemently against sharing God's glory with any other being, but when we come to passages like this, as we grow, keep proceeding in the, in the Revelation, we see that, in the whole Revelation of Scripture, we see that. Uh, uh, Jesus is the only person who shares in divinity with God himself. He is divine, and he is worshipped as God, along with God, because he is God. You know, I propose that next time when JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, come and knock at your door, just open this passage and show it to them. Just tell, just tell them to read it loud and ask them, what, what's going on here? Explain us, explain it to us, what's going on? See, you see, we have a description of heaven. We have a description of heaven. And as soon as the, the slain lamb, who is also the lion, takes the scroll, in verse 8 we see that all the four supernatural beings and all the elders fall down and start worshipping the lamb. This is extraordinary, Right? In the previous chapter, they have worshipped the Father who is seated on the throne. And right here, right here, they worship the one who is seated on the throne um, next, to the, next to the Father, the Son. They have no problem worshipping the Lamb. They have no problem. They have no qualms about worshipping the Son. So all this, all this liberal garbage... All the nonsense that people sometimes try to peddle that Jesus, Jesus was elevated uh, to the divine status in, in fourth century. 
uh, 4th century, after Christianity became an, an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. You know, that, 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 uh, that Council of Nicaea, that declared him to be divine. That's all nonsense. Right in the passage, right here we have this man, Apostle John, who was with Jesus. He saw him. He touched him. He was with him for more than three years. It is him. He is telling us in the first century that Jesus receives honor and worship from all the heavenly beings. Well, if they worship him, if heavenly beings worship him, why would you and I not worship him? You and I must worship him because he is worthy to be worshipped and praised. And look, at me, uh, look with me in verses 9 and 10. See in verses 9 and 10, uh, they sing him a new song. Do you see that? Do you sing him a new song? In the Old Testament only, God was worthy of her songs, but here the Son is worthy of a new song. And the reason why they worship him is because he has ransomed his people. Verse 9, he has ransomed, ransomed his people by his blood. Jesus is worthy to be praised because of what he has done. Nobody could have done it. He has provided for their salvation. He has paid for the penalty of their sins, sins of those who will believe in him. He died on the cross for those who believe in him, and they will not have to face second death. He bore the condemnation and the wrath of God so that he can save them from God's wrath to come, which otherwise they would have to face on their own. By dying on the cross for the sins of many, he has ransomed many from all tongues, tribe, people, and nation. He has done the unthinkable. See, because of the fall in the Garden of Eden, the great fall, the great rebellion, God should have destroyed humanity. He should have, he should have wiped us all. And then because of a continued rebellion and disobedience, because of our sins, we should have been sent to hell for eternity. Because this is entirely right, and this is what we deserved. We deserved hell. There was no way out of it. God should have crushed us for eternity because we showed him our backs. But God in his mercy, God in his mercy, look with me in these verses, God in his mercy, what did he do? He, he sent his son. He lived a perfect life on our behalf, in our place, for those who will believe in him. He then died on the cross to redeem those who will trust in him. There was no other way to save wretched sinners like me. This is the greatest, most impressive task, most impressive feat in the whole humanity of history, actually the universe. It is unthinkable that the, sinners, that the sinners have been saved by the Holy One by being slain on their behalf in their place for them. And to reconcile the wretched rebels to the one perfect, amazing, holy, awesome, majestic God. This doesn't stop here. This doesn't stop here. There is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for those who have been saved. He makes them into his people, not just ordinary people, but his priests. Verse 10, the one who have access to him, the one who can now represent him to others. 
to other sinners and point other sinners to Him. And not only that, not only that, it doesn't stop there. See, verse 10 towards the end, not only that, He saves us and then He makes us His people. He makes us His priest. We have access to Him. We can point others to Him and then we will reign with Him. We will reign with Him. How cool is that? How amazing is that? Friends, if you are here this morning and somehow you happen to not know about him, you don't know this lion, this lamb, this King Jesus, I would beg you that you would cry out to him, that you would cry out to him, and you would say, please save me. And in verses 11 to 14, very quickly, very quickly, we see that uh, the same thing is being repeated again. This time, it's not just four strange beings and the elders, but all the angels in heavens praising the Lamb. Do you see that? Do you see that? It's amazing, right? Uh, they're praising the Lamb because He's worthy to be praised. Why is He worthy to be praised? Because He was slain. Do you see they're, they're pointing to the cross again and again, what He has done for them what he has done for them, what he has accomplished for them on the cross. This is what they're talking about, thinking about, praising him for. He has the power and the ability to unfold and unfurl the events in history. He's amazing. He's amazing. He is the Lord of the history of this universe. And then in verses 13 and 14, in verses 13 and 14, we see all the creatures, all the creatures everywhere. Do you see that? All the creatures anywhere and everywhere joining the voices together in unison, worshipping God the Father and God the Son as they're praising God the Father and God the Son. I think I'm assuming, and I think it's safe to assume, God the Spirit is present and He's being worshipped because He is present with the Father and the Son in both the passages we see. Uh, finally, finally, just in case if this was not very clear, both the Father and the Son are being worshipped. Just in case you've missed that, both are being worshipped. The elders, the supernatural beings, they all fall down and they worship, they worship. Aren't these two chapters one of the most amazing chapters in the whole Bible? We've seen it very clearly. Uh, very quickly, rather, very clear, but very clearly, hopefully, that God is sovereign over everything. He is seated on the throne. There's a reason why Christians in persecuted countries and persecuted uh, situations often find these passage, passages tremendously encouraging. Tremendously encouraging, and they go back to this passage again and again and again. We clearly see that God is sovereign over everything. He's seated on the throne we see that the Son is the Lord of the history of this universe. If this is true, then God deserves a worship. There's nothing else that deserves a worship. Such majestic description of God the Father and God the Son must evoke emotions of praise and worship. How could you and I do anything other than that? How could you? How could I do anything else? Worshipping anything else other than the Son and the Father would be selling ourselves short. See, nothing else will satisfy us. This is what we were created for. This is what he was, we were created for. 
And when I say worshipping, I don't just mean singing words and singing praises to his name, which it is, no doubt. Which it is, no doubt. But submitting to him, honouring him by our lives, living for him, being obedient to him, doing what he commands to us in his word, striving to be like him, like his son, to reflect his image, to reflect his glory. My friends, my brothers and sisters, if we keep our eyes on the majesty and the beauty of this Savior, there is no, other, there is no way that we will be bogged down and be distracted by the things of this world permanently. There's no way. How can you and I remove our eyes from the majestic display of this glory, the splendor of God seated on the throne, being sovereign over everything and the amazing work of deliverance that the slain, slain lamb has done for you and me on the cross? Of course he has all the right to take that scroll because of what he has done. If you and I keep reminding ourselves this truth, this is why we gather here every week. This is why we, we, we follow him and worship him. If we keep these truths in mind, then there's nothing, nothing that would entice us, nothing that would attract us, that would lure us. Where would you find more glory? Where would you find more splendor? Where would you find more majesty? Where would you find more wonder? Isn't it here that we find it? Then why would you and I wander away? Do not settle for anything less than worshipping this God, this amazing, majestic God. Anything else is anything else is nothing but folly, foolishness. Come and worship him. My friends, please come and worship him. And not only that, go out and make him known. Go out and make him known. Make him known in Louisville. Make him known in America. Make him known in India and all the corners of this earth. He deserves honor. He deserves power. He deserves glory. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we have meditated on your word, would we not forget them? Would we be enamored by your majesty? Would we be drawn to it? Would we just live for it? Would we want to see you glorified even more? So do that. Do that, Lord. Do that for your name's sake, for your son's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.